You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Zombie Dragon Gothic Kings He was a fierce barbarian warlord, a man who had stood between his people and the brutal Roman Empire since the sack of Rome. She was a pampered Roman imperial princess known for her beauty and piety, but with a core of iron strength. Born enemies, the love of Atolf and Gala Placidia is marked by tragedy, but in its time, it burned hot enough to reshape an empire. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. I write romance novels, and I'm always intrigued by real-life romances in history. These stories stand out to me. Bright threads and a dull tapestry of practical political relationships. Two people coming together against impossible odds, defying geography, culture, and tradition to be together. This is one such story, that of Atolf and Gala Placidia. Gala Placidia was born in 388 AD. She was the daughter of Theodosius I and the younger sister of two emperors, Honorius in the Western Empire and Arcadius in the East. She was raised in the household of Stilicho, the great Roman general and nemesis to Alaric, the Gothic warlord who led the sacking of Rome. So what was Placidia like? Jordanes notes her nobility, beauty, and chaste purity. She was independent. Her father gave her her own household at the age of 12, and this was unusual for Roman women at the time. When Alaric first laid siege to Rome in 408 AD, Placidia was in the city. She would have been about 15. Months before, Placidia's guardian, the general Stilicho, had been beheaded on the orders of her older brother, the Emperor Honorius, under the mistaken belief that he was colluding with Alaric. This was a big mistake. With Stilicho dead, there was no one to stop Alaric. Setting cities on fire along the way, Alaric bore down on Rome with a force of angry Visigoths. 
Along with Gala Placidia, there were about 800,000 people in the city at the time, and all of them were in a panic. In the atmosphere of fear and paranoia that gripped the city, the Senate needed someone to blame, and the person they chose was Serena, Placidia's cousin and the widow of Stilicho. The Senate claimed that Serena was also in collusion with Alric. There was no evidence that this was true, but even so, they voted to have Serena strangled. Oh, what an awful way to go. Yeah. Despite the fact that this woman had basically raised Gala Placidia as her own, Placidia actually voted in favor of her death. So underneath that pretty pious facade, something in Placidia was stone cold. I mean, you say that again, Jenny. But definitely stone cold. After a brutal siege, the Goths broke into Rome through the Salarian Gate and walked up the streets of the city, setting houses on fire to light their way. They looted the palaces, spread mayhem in the streets, and stole everything that wasn't nailed down. Historians don't give us a detailed account of exactly how Gallipocidia came to be in custody of Alaric's army, but the most obvious scenario was that she was taken captive during the sack of Rome. Gallipocidia would have been treated as an honored guest of the Goths. No doubt she got to meet Alaric himself, Jenny's boyfriend. So jealous. I know you are. <laughs> I know. As well as his very handsome brother-in-law, Atolf. Atolf was Alaric's second-in-command. He was apparently a very attractive guy. I'm quoting given here, guys. Although physically, he was not very large, his body was very fine and his face most handsome. He was very fine. <laughs> so fine. <laughs> he was a looker. Although tiny. Tiny and hot. You know, there's worse things to be. Right. I mean, there are some short guys who've got it going on. Doesn't have to hold you back, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> when the barbarians marched from Rome down to the southern coast of Italy and tried to sail to North Africa, Gala Placidia was with them. And when Alaric died of fever after his ship sank in a storm, Gala Placidia was with them then too. When the Goths rerouted a river, buried Alaric in the riverbed, and then routed the river back over his grave, killing the gravediggers so his grave would always stay secret, Gala Placidia may have been among the mourners. Atolf took Alaric's place as king and led his people from the south of Italy all the way up to Gaul. Gala Placidia went with him on this long march. Whereas Alaric took a burn-it-to-the-ground approach to Roman relations, Atolf was initially more diplomatic. He even got the Romans to pay his people a grain dole on their way up to Gaul. They might have been paying them to leave. However, when Honorius's general, Constantius, started demanding that the Goths return Placidia, even threatening to shut off the grain supply if they didn't, Atolf responded by pillaging southern Gaul. Clearly by this time, he was determined to hold on to her. In 414, about four years after the sack of Rome, Atolf and Gala Placidia got married, and by some accounts, the couple were in love. Edward Gibbon waxes purple. And, and when does Edward Gibbon not wax purple, I ask you? <laughs> He's waxing purple here, Jenny, again, about their connection, claiming that Placidia submitted without reluctance to the desires of the conqueror. <laughs> oh God, was he writing a romance novel or what? He was writing a romance novel. It's really, it's so romantic. I mean, is his decline in fall of the Roman Empire just one long romance novel to the Roman Empire? I mean, you could make that argument. Maybe I am making that argument. You can because you are. <laughs> <laughs> 
And apparently their wedding was epic. Gala Placidia was attired like a Roman empress. Atolf wore a toga, and he reportedly sang his own canto. Gala Placidia was honored with the highest seat, her husband sitting in a chair below her, and Atolf showered his bride with gifts. Fifty beautiful youths dressed in silk came streaming into the hall carrying basins filled with gold and precious jewels. In most ways, this wedding followed Roman customs, but it stuck to the Gothic ways in one thing. In Gothic culture, it's the man who gives the dowry, not the woman. And Gala Placidia's dowry is worth a detour. It has a fascinating history both before and after their wedding. Most of the gold and precious jewels showered on Placidia that day came from Alaric's sack of Rome. After the marriage, it was kept in Atolf's palace in Narbonne in Gaul. But that wasn't the end of its history. This treasure was eventually pillaged again, split up, and circulated among later conquerors, continuing to appear in history for hundreds of years afterwards. When the Franks sacked Atolf's palace about a hundred years after the wedding, they found much of the treasure still there. 60 cups, 15 communion plates, and 20 jewel-encrusted cases to hold the books of the Gospels. The Franks distributed these amongst the churches in their realm. Among the treasures was a huge serving dish of solid gold, weighing 500 pounds and encrusted with gems. I mean, I wonder if this was on their registry. Please give us a giant 500-pound plate. I want to go back to the Alric episode when they said they raised him up on his shield. And I kind of feel like maybe they raised him up on this gold serving plate because that would just be amazing. But the thing is, this is a 500-pound serving plate, so probably not. I mean, they might have. He was crowd surfing. He totally crowd surfed. Maybe there was a war elephant involved in lifting this plate. That's possible. Yeah. Anyway, so we're talking a 500-pound giant plate plate made of solid gold encrusted with gems that your mother-in-law definitely didn't give you during your wedding. The workmanship is described as phenomenal. This dish fell into the hands of Aetius, I probably pronounced that totally wrong, the famous Roman statesman in general sometime around the mid-400s, and he presented it to Thorismund, the king of the Goths. Then it was traded to France and Spain and eventually made its way to King Dagobert of the Franks in the 600s. There was another treasure that was even more remarkable, if you can believe that. A huge table made of a single piece of emerald with 365 table legs made of gold and studded with gems, one for each day of the year. Some historians think the table was actually made of glass. This table fell into Arab hands during the Umayyad conquest of Spain in the 700s. Can you imagine that, Jenny? A giant emerald. Also, why do you need so many table legs? I know, I've had that question too. I mean, was it really, really tippy? And how did you attach them? I don't know. And where are you going to put this giant table? You'd need like a giant house around it. I can't even imagine how large this table must have been to require 365 legs. I guess like this is a real difference between what we looked at with Alric of the Visigoths last time and his constant moving his army around. Like wherever they were with this giant table, they must have been pretty sure they were going to stay there for a while. Yeah, they were actually in Narbonne. And I think Atolf at that point had a palace because I was reading about him keeping all this treasure in this palace. And there are two things to note there. Number one, they must have had a place that they considered a home base by this point, which they definitely didn't have when it was Alaric leading them up and down the peninsula of Italy and then over the Alps a whole bunch of times. And number two, they didn't really use this stuff much because it just kind of stayed in that place the whole time. And then a hundred years later, people found it. So they were still in a really unstable, tenuous position, but they had this one moment of stability, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. And that's when Gala Placidia and Atolf got married. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. 
Yeah, like it must have been just sort of like a, a small point of peace in the storm. So anyway, that was Gala Placidia's dowry. And another thing you might notice about this wedding account, um, in addition to all of the jewels and the gold and the bling, is Atolf's behavior. He honors his wife's traditions during the ceremony, he wears the dress of her country, and he even takes the seat below her. He appears to be a rare thing in our exploration of ancient history so far, and that is a guy who is nice to his wife. Oh, I mean, Swoon. it's so it's so refreshing. It's I just know. a guy who isn't a massive douche canoe to his wife. And there have been so, so many of them on this podcast already. So it looks like a love match to me. I'm also aware that at this point in the story, the bar is low. But <laughs> I'm also aware of the dangers of looking at people from the ancient world through a modern lens. They often saw things so differently than we do. And there's like a massive chance that I am completely romanticizing their relationship. Yeah, I mean, most marriages in the ancient world, especially among high-ranking people, are hard-headed political unions, and they're not love matches. Both of these people had something to gain by marrying each other. Gibbon mentions that the Gothic king aspired to call himself brother of the emperor. For Galliplicidia's part, she was already a captive of the Goths, and marrying their leader gave her a position of safety within her captivity. Also, Stockholm Syndrome is a real thing. She's been with these people for four years at this point? Yeah, it's four years. So yeah, it happened. Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, half the romance novels I've read would not have happened without Stockholm Syndrome. There's that. There's that. And also, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the concept of romantic love. The concept of romantic love wasn't really a thing in ancient Rome. There was romantic love, but I feel like a lot of the time when I encounter stories of romantic love, it's like a cautionary tale. I mean, I feel like especially when you're talking about Aphrodite, you're not necessarily talking about romantic love. You're talking about obsessive love. Right. There was a total difference between the idea we have of romantic love and the idea the ancients had of obsessive love and lust and things like that. I mean, I think that's actually a really important point that I'm trying to get at is that the ancient Romans saw passionate love as a madness, like a kind of madness and a kind of obsession. I also found this quote from Marcus Aurelius describing sex, which I just really want to throw in here. Sex is the friction of a piece of gut and... And following a sort of convulsion, the expulsion of some mucus. <laughs> <laughs> that is from Meditations. And that is possibly the worst sex scene I have ever read in my life. <laughs> I, oh my god, it's so cringy. To be honest, this explains a lot about his son Commodus later, doesn't it? That isn't to say that the ancient Romans didn't have a concept of passionate love. In Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes explains sexual attraction and love as the natural result of the gods splitting beings into various genders, doomed always to attract each other and to be incomplete without each other. So that very cliché Jerry Maguire, you complete me speech, was actually based on a very ancient concept. However, ideal marital love in ancient Rome was considered more a feeling of loyalty than a meeting of the minds and hearts. In ancient Rome, marriages, especially upper-class marriages, were expected to be fruitful in terms of children and to provide a political benefit to both parties, but passionate love didn't have to enter into it. In fact, people were often mocked in Roman society for being too into their spouses. The Romans valued rational thought and passionate love was seen as undermining rationality. There are a few examples of famous Romans who were in love with their spouses and vilified for it. Pompey, Caesar's rival, was mocked as weak and effeminate because of his love for his wife, Julia. If you're going to mock somebody in ancient Rome, weakness and effeminacy is going to come up. 
and Cato, an older man who eventually married a slave girl he was infatuated with, was seen as a pathetic old lech, panting after a beautiful young woman. The Emperor Commodus, who I mentioned earlier, was infatuated with a slave named Marcia, uh, and later she helped assassinate him, which the Romans might see as a cautionary tale about how love makes you vulnerable to assassination attempts. Which, I mean, I guess it does, because, you know, your lover knows where you sleep. Yeah, they know where you sleep. Just... Keep an eye out, Jen. (laughs) There's a reason I'm single. (laughs) A lot of this anti-love sentiment probably stems from deeply entrenched Roman misogyny. Another way the ancient Romans saw love was as a spell cast upon men by women. And for a man to be under the control of a woman, to be a henpecked husband, was a laughable and humiliating position to be in. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, This is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. That was the way Romans saw love. But let's take a look at how the Goths saw it. The documentation on this is much sparser, and it's mainly Romans writing about the Goths. So all of this should be taken with a giant salt lick. We say this a lot. Basically, this entire (laughs) podcast should be taken with a giant salt lick. (laughs) (laughs) However, there is evidence to suggest that a Tulf society would have been less misogynistic and just more romantic than Placidia's. And of course, this is a sweeping generalization. Both individual Romans and Goths could be very loving or not, depending on the person. We're just taking a look at how these two cultures thought about love and male-female relationships. Women were much more highly regarded in Gothic society, at least as reported by Tacitus. Gothic men were known to revere women and value their thoughts and advice. Tacitus says, and he sounds a little bit bemused when he says this, quote, They believe that there resides in women an element of holiness and a gift of prophecy, and so they do not scorn to ask their advice or lightly disregard their replies. It's like, whoa, Gothic men listen to women. That's weird. And you're getting this report from Tacitus, so you can already feel the condescension from it. Oh, totally. And another interesting detail here is how both these cultures treated family in war. In Roman culture, families were ripped apart or prevented entirely to make the army strong. But the Gothic culture relied on the strength of familial bonds to make their warriors fight harder. The Roman military separated men from their families and indoctrinated them into tightly knit groups of eight fighting men called contubernium. These groups shared a tent, spent every waking minute together, fought and died together, and were punished or rewarded together for one member's transgressions or heroics. They were closer than family. And to ensure nothing else interfered with that bond, Roman legionaries weren't allowed to marry or have children until they left the army. By contrast, Gothic women and children accompanied their men into battle. In Alaric and Atulf's time, there wasn't a choice, as these groups were fighting for a homeland and the families of warriors had nowhere else to go. But Gothic families had been going into battle together since long before that time. It was a well-established tradition. Instead of the contubernium system, Gothic fighting groups were organized by familial and tribal bond, including the women and children, and these played an integral role in war. Again, Tacitus says it best, quote, Close by them, too, are their nearest and dearest, 
so that they can hear the shrieks of their womenfolk and the wailing of their children. These are the witnesses whom each man reverences most highly, whose praise he most desires. It is to their mothers and wives that they go to have their wounds treated, and the women are not afraid to count and compare the gashes. They also carry supplies of food to the combatants and encourage them. It stands on record that armies already wavering and on the point of collapse have been rallied by the women, pleading heroically with their men, thrusting forward their bared bosoms, and making them realize the imminent prospect of enslavement, a fate which the Germans fear more desperately for their women than for themselves. And I just love the idea that Atalf came from this really romantic culture and was head over heels for this strong, independent Roman princess and just completely wooed and beguiled her. We're definitely romanticizing this in the podcast. I just, I have to just say that. Yeah. (laughs) I think that we also have to mention here the possibility that this relationship may not have been entirely consensual for Galloplacidia. And it's so easy for me to just get totally swept away by this idea that these two people fell in love with each other, even though the were so long that that would happen, but she was technically the Goths' captive, and after four years, it's kind of hard to know how her relationship with the Goths had changed, or if it had changed, and how much free will she had in this situation, you know? We don't have the story in her own words. Yeah, and I totally agree, and I come at this from the sort of like, oh, it'd be lovely if it was a romance story, but I'm a true crime fanatic, and I'm like, she was kidnapped! Stockholm Syndrome exists, and maybe that's what she was feeling, but also like, Maybe that's not what she was feeling. Yeah, absolutely. The darkest way to interpret this is not pretty. And I just want to flag that so that we don't get too carried away with this here. Absolutely. And and to remember that that whole Stockholm Syndrome romance from like Beauty and the Beast or East of the Sun, West of the Moon or Cupid and Psyche, they all come down and make us think like, oh, yes, you can totally fall in love under the worst of circumstances. There's also Bluebeard, guys. That's exactly it. Like, I feel like we're primed to think of this kidnapping and then falling in love scenario as romantic. And there's definitely a part of me that does. And I have to check myself in this podcast because I have such an instinct to romanticize things. That being said, outside of what the sources say, there are also other reasons to take a happier view of this. And that's kind of why I chose to present it this way. And the idea that the Goths may have been slightly less misogynistic than the Romans is one of those. And maybe that appealed to Galloplacidia. Maybe she just felt treated better among them than she was at home. And maybe she found in a different culture a freedom that was lacking in her Roman culture. Maybe being away from the trappings of her being an imperial princess, there was something about it that was really new and fresh. And she was able to find love with someone in a different culture in a different time and place. There's a basis for that interpretation. Yes, there absolutely is a basis for that interpretation. It's probably not the only interpretation, though. They did have one child, a boy, whom they named Theodosius after Placidia's father, but he died in infancy. While they were married, Atulf took into his service a guy named Ewerwolf? I'm going to say Ewerwolf. Ewerwolf. <laughs> sure, or Ewerwolf. I just, Ewerwolf? Can we call him Wolfie? We're going to call him Wolfie. Now, apparently Wolfie was not very tall, and Atolf, who also was not very tall, mocked him for this incessantly. I mean, hello, pot, meet the kettle. Right, this would be a pot meat kettle situation. Absolutely. This one vertically challenged man 
Mocking another vertically challenged man for being vertically challenged. But you see, Jenny, the thing is, mocking the vertically challenged Wolfie was a very dangerous idea. Unbeknownst to Atolf, Wolfie had once been a servant of Saris, the enemy of Alric. Alric had surprisingly few enemies within the Goths, but Saris was one of them. Saris outlived Alric, but when Atolf got a chance to annihilate this guy, he took it. While Saris was riding with about 20 of his followers, Atolf took 10,000 of his and went after him, which I just think is, what is what is that thing about, like, destroying an anthill with a sledgehammer? It's just such overkill, isn't it? Right. It's just completely unnecessary show of force. I'm trying to, like, imagine how this went down. Atolf's people lassoed him or tangled him in some kind of a sack or something. Apparently, this was a well-documented Hunnic assassination technique and thus a lot more badass than it sounds, but it's a little bit hard for me to picture. Wolfie was already mad at Atal for killing Saris. With a sack. With 10,000 men in a sack. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit ignoble. Right. Um, <laughs> and he was mad that Atal was constantly picking on him, and this made him even more ragey. Eventually, Wolfie stabbed Atal in the bath in his palace at Barcelona. I mean, jeez, this is like, yeah, another guy we found out about who died in a bathroom. What's the count? Is it four? <laughs> Caracalla. Elagabalus. Elagabalus died in a latrine. Caracalla died while pissing in the great outdoors, which I guess counts. Was it Alexander Severus who died with his mom in a latrine? No, 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 no. Alexander Severus died, I think, in his camp or something. Yeah. I forget, but he, I don't think it was in a bathroom. So here we go. Atulf died of his wounds. He and Gala Placidia were married for less than a year. What happened to Gala Placidia after her husband died? The first Gothic leader to seize the throne after Atulf's death was Sigaric, the brother of Saris. His first move was to murder Atulf's six kids from a previous marriage, ripping them from the arms of a bishop who was trying to protect them. And here's a little aside. Atulf had six kids from a previous marriage. I was wondering who this other marriage was was, and I couldn't really find any information on it, but we do know that Atolf was Alaric's brother-in-law, and I didn't find anything about whether or not he used to be married to Alaric's sister, or Alaric's wife was Atolf's sister, or how that relationship worked. So Sigaric's second move was to force Gala Placidia to march on foot for 12 miles out of southern Gaul amidst a crowd of other captives, driven before him on his horse as she lamented her husband. But Sigaric didn't have time to do much more than that. He lasted only a week as king before he was murdered by his own men. Someone named Walia was elected after him. King Walia started off his reign by taking a page from the Alaric playbook. I mean, Jenny's favorite historical boyfriend's playbook. It's my favorite, my favorite playbook. I know. He marched his people down the coast of Spain to Gibraltar, where there are monkeys, Jenny. Did you know there's monkeys there? Um, now I do, because you told me. <laughs> I'm terrified of monkeys. I'm not going to Gibraltar. Monkeys are so cute, though. Are they? They're thinking. They're plotting. You have, you have an active imagination, lady. Walia marched his people down to Gibraltar and tried to get them on a bunch of boats. And how did that go, Jen? Well, see, here's the thing. He actually couldn't inspire his people to get on the boats to cross to Africa like Alaric would have wanted because his people had been there and they'd done that and they knew that it had not gone well the first time and they were not going to try it a second time. Yeah, they were like, nope, goths and boats don't mix. <laughs> At this point, Walia was out of options. His people turned back on the countryside, pillaging until the land was empty, and then they had to live on that land. And it wasn't long before his people were starving. And 
they kind of brought it on themselves. So soon the Vandals, another Gothic tribe, were selling them grain at the exorbitant rate of one gold solidus per spoonful and mocking them by calling them truly or, quote, spoonies, based on the Latin word trula for spoonful. And I got that delightful little detail from Guy Halsell's Barbarian Migrations in the Roman West. And I just want to say there is so much mocking in the ancient world and it all has really dire consequences. Like these people have never heard of sticks and stones may break your bones, but words may never hurt you. They all just take the mocking really seriously. I mean, I would I would argue, Jenny, that we still take mocking really seriously today and it's caused many, many problems. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm just saying, just take a step back. <laughs> you don't have to respond to every insult like it's life and death on the playground of life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, clearly all the starving and the mocking was getting out of hand and King Walia was forced to negotiate with Rome. He pledged his sword and that of his people to the service of the empire in return for 600,000 measures of wheat. It was enough to feed about 100,000 people for three to four months, much less than the year's worth of grain money that Alaric had extorted out of the empire years earlier. And it basically put the Goths back into the Federate agreements Alaric had worked so hard to get them out of. Alaric would have turned over in his grave, under the river, with his hoard of gold, all smaug-like, and been absolutely furious with the Goths. Yeah, I can totally see him rising up, dragon-like, from his hoard at the bottom of the river, breathing fire. Oh yeah, I mean, he would have been pillaging that countryside hardcore. Zombie dragon gothic kings. If only they'd given him his title in death, then he wouldn't have come back. (laughs) I know, posthumous senior manager of the Goths. King Walia also traded Placidia back to the empire as part of this deal. Her Roman family immediately married her off to her dead husband's archenemy, Flavius Constantius, the Roman general. So if Atolf is this story's romantic hero, Constantius is its villain. The historian Olympiodorus describes him like this. In public processions, Constantius was sullen and morose. He had bulging eyes, a thick neck, and massive head. When riding, he always slumped over the horse's neck, looking shiftily from side to side so that he seemed to have a very tyrant's look. I mean, that doesn't sound that attractive compared to Atolf, who was very fine. He was very fine, but very wee. Kind of like a handsome leprechaun. (laughs) (laughs) But Constantius had bulging eyes. I mean, that's not like like a desirable quality. Unless you're a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's... Babies are also unattractive, in my opinion. (laughs) Oh, it's harsh. So, while Placidia was with Atolf, Constantius had hounded the Goths constantly and helped sour Atolf's relationship with the Empire, driven, at least partially, by jealousy over Placidia. Honorius kept promising Constantius that he could have Placidia in marriage if he could get her back. But Placidia strongly objected to being offered up as a prize. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? No, exactly. Unfortunately, however, nobody cared what Placidia wanted. She and Constantius were married in 417, about two years after Atolf's death. The couple had two children, Valentinian and Honoria. About four years after the marriage in 421, Constantius became emperor, catapulting Placidia to the position of empress. Months later, Constantius died. Placidia's six-year-old son, Valentinian, became emperor, and Placidia finally came into her own. Placidia reigned as regent for 12 years, and for a time, she was one of the most powerful women in the Roman Empire. For much of her reign, she lived in Ravenna, supervising her son's education, presiding over court, 
and settling high-profile disputes. When a violent succession crisis plunged Rome into turmoil after the death of Pope Zosimus, Placidia stepped in to support the election of Pope Boniface I. She also commissioned a number of public works, including churches, and for the rest of her life, Placidia was accompanied by a contingent of intensely loyal Gothic bodyguards from her time with Atolf. Placidia died in her 60s. One of the buildings she commissioned was a mausoleum in Ravenna that's now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Constantius is buried there, but Placidia isn't, and for a long time, no one knew where she was buried. But in 1458, a marble casket was found in Honorius's mausoleum at the chapel of St. Petronella on the Vatican Hill in Rome. It contained two smaller caskets, both sheathed in silver. One held a very young child, the other an older woman. The body of the woman is believed to be Placidia, and the body of the child is thought to be her son, not Valentinian, but her first child, Theodosius. According to records from the time, Placidia had had the child's body moved from Gaul the year she died. If this is right, Gala Placidia chose not to be buried with Constantius, but with the child she bore with Atolf. And that's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan and Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl and on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and wherever podcasts usually hang out. And if you like what we do, please consider leaving us a review. We're just getting started and it helps us get seen. And also, if you like what we do and you're a little flush with cash and you want to help keep us going, we have an easy way for you to do that. Just go to our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com and click on the link on our homepage that says buy us a latte. This helps us keep the lights on and pay for recording equipment, sound editing, hosting services, research materials, and the caffeinated beverages that keep us up and researching at night. Thank you so much. Your help, your reviews and ratings and word of mouth and your listening ears are so deeply appreciated. Yes, thank you so much. 